Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the Assumption Parish authorities arrested Lanise Martin III after he was filmed licking Bluebell ice cream in a grocery store, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where a picture of the My Girlfriend Is Not Hungry item on Mama D's Diner in North Little Rock's menu went viral. Okay, tonight Michael and I are talking about failed Dr. Leon Philip Jacob. Jacob, the first in our Mad Doctor series, ran afoul of the law in 2017 when he and girlfriend at the time, Valerie McDaniel, hired a hitman to kill Jacob's ex, Megan, and Valerie's ex-husband, Mac. We'll talk about Jacob's failed medical career, his troubled relationship history, and the murder-for-hire case that led to Valerie's March 2017 suicide and Jacob's conviction and life sentence in 2018. As always, we all are live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I I've been laughing every time I see it on Facebook that uh, Mama D's diner. But um, so uh, Lanice Martin, uh, I'm assuming yes. this is different than the other situation, correct? Correct. Um, a oh. little background, oh. and then I'm going to go into my PSA. Yeah, basically we've got a few co- I've seen a few copycats and this is why I decided to do the PSA. Um okay. the first one that showed up on social media was a juvenile from San Antonio who went to a Lufkin, Texas Walmart with her boyfriend who lives in the Houston area and licked a bluebell container. She posted a post basically saying she had been sick. Look at what she did. Let's do this, do this tag, and let's make this go viral, literally. Because she's a juvenile, they're not revealing her name as far as the police go. Uh, And media outlets have followed suit, even though the dummy posted it on social media. Right. (laughs) 
So her name should be fair game. Um, In Texas, what she did is a felony. Punishable by up to 20 years in prison. Okay, I don't know about 20 years, but okay. That is that is the maximum sentence for tamper because no, what I'm you're saying, doing is tampering with food. Quite, I don't know if that quite fits the crime, but you know, hey, definitely. Uh, well, you're definitely you're you're tampering. You're tampering with food that might be consumed by someone else and cause harm to them. True. That's what it comes down to. Sometimes the sentence is because of the gravity of the crime and tampering with food out you're too young to remember the Tylenol and the Excedrin poisonings. Oh yeah, I remember uh seeing a documentary on that though. Right. Uh, that's why they don't make capsules anymore, right? They make gel caps. Correct. Um and you know that's why they, they started putting now what Bluebell is gonna have to do unfortunately is they're gonna have to start putting either a plastic film over the top of the container or putting a plastic collar around the top. But for the PSA, first of all, if you're going to commit a crime and this is a crime, don't film yourself doing it and posting it on social media. That becomes evidence against you. And it is irrefutable evidence against you. And what this little girl in Texas is going to learn is that if she tries saying, oh, I didn't think it would hurt anybody, I didn't mean any harm, her social media post talking about being sick and wanting things to go viral is going to be what we call impeachment evidence. Hmm. Because that's the statement of her intent at the time she committed the act. True. So, you know, you post this shit on social media, you dumbasses, and you give prosecutors a case with a freaking bow tie on it. Right. And uh, I'm surprised. I'm actually, I have to give Arkansas credit. Y'all have not had a copycat. Woohoo! They've been in Texas, and they've been uh, the one in Louisiana. I saw two more. I don't know where they're from, but they're younger people. Um, Lanise Martin is 36. He don't have that youth excuse because right. he should know better. Um, Absolutely. But, uh, you know, it's not funny. It's not cute. And, you know, if you're thinking about doing it, before you do it, Look in that freezer case and ask yourself, do I want to have to say yes when I am asked on future job applications if I have ever been convicted of a felony? And then ask yourself, ask yourself, do you want to have to disclose that that felony was licking a Bluebell container in a Walmart? I was about to say, can you imagine, you know, the stereotypical prison scene in movies and TV shows? What are you in for? Uh, I just leaked a, you know, a container of Bluebell ice cream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. 
And you know, when you look at it, it's not cute. It's not funny. It's actually, it's actually incredibly disgusting that you would do that and put it back in the freezer for someone else to buy. Um, And some, you know, some of the Walmarts, one, one town in Texas, I can't remember the jurisdiction. They actually have two, two officers that were guarding the ice cream freezers. And and Walmart and Corpus Christi had an employee named Ruben guarding the ice cream freezers with a water pistol. So, you know, Walmart has had some sense of humor about it. Right. But, you know, it's, y'all, it's not cute. It's not funny. Um, and if you're going to do it, for God's sake, don't don't film yourself and post it on social media. Right. Because they will find you, and, and you, you're giving the prosecutor evidence of your intent and your motive. Well, I And the dumb, you know, the dumb girl from, from San Antonio smiling at the camera thinking she's cute. She's not going to look too good in stripes. When I was in the Air Force, when I was first getting in the Air Force, this has been about 10 years ago, and I was under 21 at the time, I remember they used to give us this briefing. And I remember one time they looked at us and they said, guys, do you know how we catch a lot of you? And, of course, everybody's like, no. And they're like, we catch a lot of you underage drinking because your dumbass is posted on Facebook. People think Mm -hmm. Facebook is uh, private, but not really. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's that's my public service announcement. I mean, bottom line, stop doing it. You're tampering with food. Uh, in Texas, it's felony. In a lot of other states, it's probably a felony, which is punishable by more than than a year in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's something. It if you if you do it, you film yourself. You're prosecuted. You're going to be convicted. There's no if. You're going to be convicted. And you're going to have a felony on your record, and you're going to have to answer yes to that question on every job application that you fill out for the rest of your life. Well, what I mean, the sad part so, is, okay, would, I, I could find a little bit more humor in it if they would, like, videotape themselves pulling a pint of bluebell out of the freezer, licking it. And then acting like they put it back, cutting off the video, and then going and buying it. But to actually leave it in the freezer—that's just nasty. Yeah, and that's part of that's part of the quote challenge. I mean, and and you know, then I, I have to say, if you want to do that, if you want to do stupid stuff, go back to eating Tide Pods, because then the only right. person you're going to hurt is yourself. Darwinism, that is bad. Exactly. <laughs> So, all right, end of PSA. But, and you know when somebody from Arkansas does it, and they probably will, um, oh, you know. you'll hear about it here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know it's going to happen. It's only a matter so, of mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the, there haven't really been any new developments in any of the cases yet. Uh, the only quasi-development is that Rodney Reed's family and some anti-death penalty groups 
traveled to Washington, D.C. last week and protested in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, Now, while it may be admirable to have that kind of commitment and outlay that kind of money, that is not how cases get to the U.S. Supreme Court or get before the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court. And while Reed's family says that the Supreme Court has the power to take a look at his case, they have had three opportunities to do so in the past and have passed on each opportunity. So it is highly unlikely that they will look at it now. Right. Um, And instead of traveling to Washington, D.C. and protesting in front of the U.S. Supreme Court and crying about something that you're not going to get immediate satisfaction on, what they should be doing is getting Bryce Benjet and uh, Andrew McRae and the other attorneys to go ahead and file – the federal lawsuit seeking DNA testing, which Larry Swearingen tried and failed um, to, to get, uh, or filing a writ at the U.S. Supreme Court, or coming up with some actual evidence that somebody other than Rodney Reed killed Stacey Sykes. Right. Because continuing to claim that there's evidence is uh, is getting old. Right. So, so that is the end of the new developments. Okay. Somebody went to the Supreme Court and thought that they were going to get their case seen because they threw a hissy fit. Well, you know, I, 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 that's not how a case gets to them. Going and protesting, I mean, all the protesters in front of the U.S. Supreme Court during Kavanaugh's hearings did not keep him from being confirmed by the Senate. Right. Um, you know, that's not how things, that's not how it gets before the Supreme Court. Write yeah. a writ, get a writ, file a writ. That's how it's going to get before this. And I doubt the Supreme Court's going to review it because it's not really right. any different from the prior writ on the DNA testing issue, which, after much delay, was ultimately uh, declined. And Interestingly enough, it was declined. Even the ultra-progressive members, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Sotomayor, and I think Justice Kennedy has been siding with the progressives, uh, none of them even felt compelled to write a memorandum opinion about what a raw deal Rodney Reed has gotten all these years. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Um, so that, that's interesting to me because usually in death penalty, especially death penalty cases, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kennedy, or maybe it's Souter, 
um, all of them tend to issue a memorandum opinion when a writ is denied. Right. As to why they would have granted the writ. Right. And I mean, you know, and depending on your political beliefs, you know, obviously that's something that goes down political lines as well is, you know, the death penalty. But typically, I mean, if it's a situation kind of like the guy that's going to be put to death uh, in North Carolina, uh, I have a Mm -hmm. feeling that there's going to be nobody sitting there fighting for that dude. I forget his name, but just the church shooter. Uh, Dylan Roof? Yeah, Dylan Roof. South Carolina? Did he even get the death penalty? I think he did. I believe he did. I believe he said he's going to get the federal. Didn't he get the feds? Let me look. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, Yeah, he's on federal death row in Terre Haute, Indiana. I don't think we're gonna see yeah, too many missing. people crying. I don't think we're gonna see too many people crying when he gets put to death. Uh, probably not. The federal, um, although I don't know, they 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 executed Timothy McVeigh pretty quickly. Um, it, it's gonna depend on Bruce's appeals. Uh, he was convicted and sentenced in 2017. So well, uh, he's going to still have appeals. Bruce's only appeal is going to be that he is mentally incompetent, correct? He can't really say, hey, I didn't do it. Because pretty sure there's Facebook posts, speaking of Facebook. Um, and actually, I don't. Well, I don't know. I it looks like Yeah, he was sentenced to death. Um at one time he was he was trying to get a life sentence. Mhm. Which I really can't see him com- I the only thing like I said, the only challenge I think he has is to somehow convince him he's mentally insane. Yeah, uh, he may try that, but he, he didn't. He didn't put that before the court in the um, in the guilt innocence phase. Uh-huh. He's going to have a tough a tough time uh, in the sentencing phase. Well, his lawyers are idiots. So, but like I said, he he's got he's got a. Federal direct appeal, and then uh, federal habeas corpus. I thought that was like the bread and butter play. Was the first thing you do is say, "Hey, my client's just completely out of his damn mind." Well, you you can't just say that. You have to prove it. Right. Well, I'm sure, and, you know, 
I'm pretty sure, didn't they at one point declare, try to declare Damien mentally, uh, mentally insane or something? Well, it's kind of, it, it's kind of convoluted. Um, they didn't plead anything as far as the guilt innocence phase. In the death penalty phase, they did try to get uh, sympathy that he had mental issues. Uh It didn't work. And then later in his post-conviction claims, one of those claims was that at the time he was tried, he was not mentally competent to stand trial. Uh But I don't want to go into that rabbit hole tonight. Right. (laughs) <laughs> that is a rabbit hole And it is a rabbit hole Yes It is a rabbit hole So um, if, if they ever If they ever um, Do anything more than Complain about what they went through When they were in prison And point fingers at other people and claim to have been wrongfully convicted, if they actually come forward with some legitimate new evidence that exonerates them, then we can we can revisit the West Memphis three case. Yeah, and I don't think that'll ever happen. Uh, okay. I think everybody's kinda of washed their hands of that situation. Yeah, their their uh their suspended sentence agreements are gonna expire. Next, no, the end of this year. Oh wow! No, no, I'm sorry, 2021. Okay. 2021. And they still won't have any exculpatory evidence. Hmm. Yeah. True. So, all right, let's get on with the show. Okay. <laughs> uh, State of Texas versus Leon Philip Jacob. Mm-hmm. And we're going to start with an overview. Um, I want to preface this by saying um, Leon makes Dahlia DiPolito look like a choir girl. Oh, wow. And makes Jody Arias look almost like a truthful, honest person. Wow. Okay. He's a piece of work. And we'll get into my speculation on how that came to be as we go. <laughs> so... Um, Leon Jacob was born in May of 1970, either 78 or 77 or 78, uh, to Dr. James Jacob and his wife, Golda. At the time, the family was living in either New York or New Jersey. Uh, Sometime after Leon was born, they relocated to Houston, Texas. Not much is known about Jacob's early life before the age of about 12. And at that point, 
significant event was the death of his father. There's been speculation on the internet because Leon was actually at home alone with his father at the time that Leon may have had a hand in it, which when you get to know him, you'll understand why. Um, But I think at the age of 12 and the fact that what I can infer from the various sources I read, his father had some type of medical problem, medical condition, and had been sick for a while. More likely than not, cancer. Um, so I don't think Leon had anything to do with it, but I think what happened was 12-year-old Leon was left home alone, and his father you know, was in, at home in hospice-type care and mm-hmm. passed away while nobody was there. Right. Other than Leon, who called, you know, he called the neighbor and he called 911. Um, mm-hmm. And it was probably an, an incredibly traumatic experience for him. Um, right. Which he may have chosen to milk for the rest of his life. Uh, because apparently, after his father's death, when he entered high school, he was going to a pretty prestigious school in Houston. His mom had become an attorney, very successful family law attorney. Um, And suddenly he went with his sister to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire. Purely speculation and it may sound a little racist, but I've known many Jewish families over the course of my life. And Jewish mothers don't tend to want to send their first baby boys off to boarding school unless there's a problem. Right. Uh, He was already, you know, Phillips Exeter is a very prestigious school. But he was already going to a prestigious school in Houston. So he didn't need to go to one in New Hampshire. <laughs> okay? So I, I, I suspect, again, it's purely my speculation because there's nothing, nothing that corroborates that uh, belief. But like I said, uh, Jewish moms don't send their firstborns off to boarding school. Right. Unless there's a problem. Uh, mm-hmm. He managed to finish Phillips Exeter Academy. Uh, speculating again, but probably not at the top of his class because. He doesn't go on to Yale or Harvard or Stanford or Columbia or, you know, an Ivy League school. He comes back to Texas and goes to UT Austin. He doesn't go to Syracuse University where his mom went. He comes back and goes to UT Austin. Because if you have residency in the state and you have a pulse, they pretty much take you. Go Longhorns. Yeah, go Longhorns. And UT is a great school. It really is. I'm I'm not I'm not knocking it, but you know, Leon Jacob 
paints this picture of his family as very well-to-do and very socially connected and, you know, cream of the crop in Houston society. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, first of all, you go to a boarding school in New Hampshire, and then you don't go to Columbia or Syracuse or Harvard or Yale or Columbia or Stanford even, you come back and go to UT. Right. You know, um, Ivy League education has, you know, a certain ring to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you portray yourself as that kind of person, I'd like to know why you didn't have an Ivy League education, Leon. Um, and it was sometime during college that he met a young woman by the name of Annie Morrison, and they were married in 2001. Right. Then Leon graduates from UT Austin, and again, he does not go to um, Harvard Med or uh, LSU Medical School. Texas A&M Medical School. He goes to St. George's University in Grenada. And St. George's offshore um, medical schools are generally known for either not costing a lot of money and being more accepting from less than average students. I'm guessing Leon did not do well in the MCATs, which is the test that you take to get into medical school. Okay. So um, Annie went with him, and he, they were married in 2001, so I think they were married right after he started medical school. Mm-hmm. And he finished med- medical school in 2005. He returns to Texas, and he starts a general surgery residency at St. Vincent's Medical Center in Houston. Or no, in New York City. Okay. He lasted there for one year and a month. One year and one month. And then his residency contract contract was not renewed. Um, Usually, a a residency, especially a surgical residency, you're there for four years. Right. Your first year residence, second year, third year, fourth year. He made it one year and one month, and then he was. Um, not his contract was not renewed. He okay. returned to Texas then and went to Baylor. And once again, after a year, his contract was not renewed. Um, Leon had some issues. Uh-huh. He, um, and if you, you you should go to YouTube, search Leon Jacob, watch his testimony in his criminal trial. This man uh-huh. has an inflated opinion of his own worth oh, wow. and no 
um, what is it, self-assessment ability. You know, he can't say, ooh, I screwed that up. He says, you messed that up for me. Wow. Yeah. So um, then he goes to a residency program, another residency program in Houston. Once again, one year and one month, and he's out. Mm-hmm. He had a fellowship in kidney and pancreas transplantation for one year, and then he was done. Uh, he also was in a program in Ohio, which he doesn't link list on his LinkedIn, but um, he was asked to leave that one uh, because he was deemed a threat to patient safety and was subpar in his skills. He was like in the seventh percentile on the different testing that they do during your residency on, you know, knowledge and applying that knowledge to to treatment of patients. He was inappropriate with patients. He was inappropriate with staff. Um, they had one, they had lectures like once a week. He would come to the lecture for an hour and then leave because he knew oh, the material already. And it was during this time that he started an affair with a woman by the name of Patricia Goodnight. He's still married. And his mm-hmm. wife has managed, in addition to having two children from this person, and I, I use that word sparingly, um, she has also managed to finish law school and <laughs> pass a bar examination. <laughs> so um, he starts an affair with Patricia Gooden. Uh, Patricia was married at the time. Her marriage was probably not, you know, picture perfect. Um, she pro- may may have been a little frustrated with it. I don't know. Maybe her husband left the toilet seat up one too many times at night, and she fell into the bowl. Who knows? <laughs> but the affair with beginning with Leon Jacob ends her marriage to her husband Darren. Then Leon Jacob begins stalking and harassing Darren, mm-hmm. who has to get a protective order. At one point, their idea to keep the Gooden's children away from Darren, Leon hits the son, hit the older child, the son, in the stomach, and then has the son tell police that his dad did it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, when his residency at the hospital in Ohio ended, he filed a lawsuit and a due process claim with the powers that be at the hospital to try and keep the, you know, stay in the residency program. And one of the people who testified against him was Patricia Gooden. Good. 
So, you know, things must have been going down in that relationship. Right. And he retaliates against Patricia by burglarizing her house in Ohio. Wow. Okay. So the picture is forming piece of work, huh? Right. <laughs> and we're only in 2011. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. Um, so he moves to uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, He's not in any, from what I can piece together from his LinkedIn, he's not in any residency program. He's not in any uh, anything to do with medicine, basically. Um, when he's in Pittsburgh, but he's staying in one of those extended stay suites hotels mm-hmm. and he's involved in a divorce with Annie Morrison whom he has a history of abusing during right. their marriage and during the breakup of their marriage and while she was pregnant with their second child um, he meets Megan Barricus she is a girl from Pittsburgh born and raised she is uh, working at the hotel. I think she was a manager. Mm-hmm. She meets him. And according to interviews that she's given on, like Dateline and, and uh, a couple of other news programs, news magazine programs, um, you know, at first she didn't like him because he's very haughty, um, very – like my shit don't stink. I'm, you know, I'm better than everyone else. But once he decides he likes her, he turns on the charm, and he can be charming for short periods of time, and convince these women he's the best thing to ever happen to him. Right. Uh, and Megan, her marriage was also struggling at the time. And so she begins an, an affair with Leon and that's the end of her marriage. Mm-hmm. And at that point, like I said, he's not working in Pittsburgh anywhere that I can find on his LinkedIn. So he's basically living in Pittsburgh, running up debt which we'll talk about a little bit later. So he and Megan get involved, and then he decides he's going to come back to Houston, Texas, and uh, he convinces Megan to move back to Houston with him. And she does, and she leaves everything she knows, and um, repeating the pattern he had with Annie, basically with Annie, He was never gainfully employed because he was never lasting longer than a year in any of these residencies, which means he's not eligible to be a practicing doctor. Right. uh, Because you have to complete four years of residency. 
And then there's an internship, which with that checkered history of his residency, he's not going to get an internship. Those are even more competitive than the residencies. Um, So he's not bringing any money, and he's spending money. Uh And he's spending money on things like Patricia Gooden. Um, So they move to Houston, and he starts repeating the pattern. He doesn't really have a job. He's not bringing any money. But he opens up a joint account, and he wants Megan to put all her money into that account and then pay all the bills. And when he wants to blow money on something, he blows money on something. And she can say, fuck all about it. Fair enough. And there's also incidents, incidents of domestic violence against Megan. So um, that creates a lot of strain. And then Megan, I think Megan was a little bit stronger than he anticipated her to be because she actually voices her frustration with him to his family who appear from everything that I've been able to gather to be absolutely normal people. His mom is a successful attorney. His brother was an engineer with Brown and Root. He's a mechanical engineer. Um, but, of course, the, you know, the economy tanked. So now he is studying to be a lawyer. Um, but he was a successful engineer for a period of time. Uh, he was born in 82, so he's about four years younger. He's got a sister who's about two years younger or a year younger. She seems to be totally normal, although she did go to Phyllis Exeter, so maybe Daddy's death for only daughter caused a few teenage angsty issues. Um, but she seems to have her life back on track. And then in 2016, he files for bankruptcy. He's got attorney's bills in Pennsylvania. Illinois and Ohio because in addition to the unsuccessful bid to get his residency back in Ohio, he's also stalked Annie and been charged with stalking. He had the burglary in Ohio. Uh, He's been charged with stalking in Illinois. Um, And, you know, kind of typical, typical stalker behavior when he was obsessively calling Annie and screaming at her and threatening her and threatening to kill her parents, he was just trying to check in on his sons. Of course. You know. So he files a bankruptcy in August or September of 2016. He's got $40-something thousand that he owes to America Express on top of a second card for about $4,000. He owes $24,000 to a casino in Pennsylvania. Um, they, they've got a lawsuit against him. American Express is suing him. Um, 
he has child care and child support obligations to Annie, which thank God aren't dischargeable. Um, and then he's got, uh, like I said, he's got thousands of dollars to different attorneys in Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Illinois. Right. They stiffed these attorneys. And his debts were discharged in November of 2017, 2016, excuse me. And so December and early January of 2016, 2017, things with Megan are getting more and more heated. He's got more incidences of domestic abuse against her, but the the kicker comes on January 12th, uh, 2017, when he starts throwing things at Megan, throwing dishes around, tearing through their apartment, wrecking it, and um, she decides she's had it. She's finally going to leave him because of prior incidents, he would apologize and she would forgive him and, you know, he would never do it again and then he'd do it again and she would forgive him, and he'd say he'd never do it again. And then he, here he is, January 12th, doing it again. And yep. so she leaves. Yeah, she goes to his mom's. She ends up going to stay with his brother and sister-in-law. Seven days after that, he begins an affair with a former neighbor of his mother, who was also his mother's client, a woman who had a veterinary, successful veterinary practice uh, named Valerie McDaniel. Valerie was, uh, again, born and raised in Houston. Her parents were psychologists. Um, she had an uneventful early life. I think she had one sister or maybe two sisters. Not sure of the birth order because there's not really a lot of information about their family online. Um, she went to a good high school in Houston and was a member of the first graduating class of that school. She went on to college at St. Thomas, which is a small Catholic college in Houston in the Montrose area, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then she went on to vet school at Texas A&M. Prestigious vet school. Completed her vet school, completed everything she needed. She was a licensed practicing veterinarian. Uh Sometime during the 1990s, I think it was 96, 97, she married a man named Marion Mac McDaniel, or Marion McDaniel III, called him Mac. Um, uh-huh. They opened a vet practice in Montrose. She was the vet, and he ran the business. They also branched out into a pet cremation business. And um, eventually they they realized Valerie was unable to have children, and so they adopted a little girl shortly after birth. And everything was okay. 
as far as she knew. Um, but in 2015, this is I found this extremely interesting. Her parents were involved in their own scandal. Apparently, they were taking money from police officers in the Houston area to write favorable psychological reviews for officers and or officer candidates, often without ever even talking to or examining those individuals. Um, It was discovered, and in 2015, her parents each pled guilty. They were able to keep their licenses, but they had to to be monitored for a period of time. But it was a Uh – it was a pretty – yeah, pretty big scandal. And Valerie strikes me, even with the dearth of information online – she strikes me as someone who was always somewhat fragile herself. And all her uh-huh. friends described her as very kind. They called her an angel. You know, she would help anybody she could. Um, she cared very much for all of her clients' pets, her own pets. Like I said, the pet cremation business is, you know, it shows how much you care for the family because you're giving their their pet a dignified handling after after death. Right. Um and so it was probably something of a of a shock to her. And also around that time, she learned that Mac had been unfaithful. Oh. She also rekindled her affair with Leon Jacob. So he's already moving on to Valerie even before his relationship with Megan ends. And I'm sure there were some gifts to Valerie that Megan paid for. I can't prove it, but I bet you there were. Because Annie, in Reconstructing, found gifts to Patricia Gooden. Right. Um, and so, in 2016, she filed for divorce. The she was represented by Leon's mother, Golda. And in 2016, they, they got the decree and they reached a financial settlement and a custody settlement for their daughter. Now, one of the things with the financial settlement, the vet practice, that was a marital asset because it was started together. She got wow. to keep the vet practice he got to keep the prep cremation business. Um, they had invested in a couple of three bars. They owned some properties like in Galveston and a couple of other places. So they split those things down. And then she had to pay him $1.25 million, which I guess was the assessed value 
of the veterinary practice or his interest in the veterinary practice. Wow. It's unclear from the records whether she had actually paid that or whether she was working on arranging some way to get a lump sum payment to pay him or whether she was paying him like a monthly stipend. Or or what the what the actual financial arrangement was, but it was one point two five million dollars. Um, and also at that time, yeah, Valerie bought a condominium that her parents had actually bought in twenty fifteen. And she moved out of the home that her parents had bought for them into that condominium. And seven days after he broke up with Megan Barakas, Leon Jacob moved in that condo with Valerie. So, and I think this would be a good place for us to go ahead and break for a few minutes. Okay. And then we'll get into the we'll get into the nitty gritty. Okay. Well ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Clear and Convincing. We'll be right back after these messages. See Arkansas favorites like Cataclysm, Ace Morta, the original Misfit, Josh Cross, Suicide King, Ray Ray, Insane Shane, and current AWO champion at D-Mike. As they battle for redemption this Saturday in Ola at 307 West Hill Street. Doors open at 530. Concessions will be available. And this is a family-friendly show with kids under six getting in free. It's Redemption. Brought to you by the Arkansas Wrestling Organization. Thank you. 
Are we back? Yes, ma'am. All right. I was still outside. That's the wrong song throwing you off there. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Although that first song was appropriate. <laughs> you know what? You ain't lying. <laughs> so, but... um. All right, let me get, I'm going to get another drink, and then I'll be ready to go back. You talk, because the dog will bark if I do. Yes, ma'am. Talk. But I tell you, $1.2 million. Now, was that like considered or thrown under? Is that what alimony would be considered or whatever? No. No. That was the value of the vet practice. Because it was a marital, a joint, a joint thing. A joint asset of marriage. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so is that what Yeah. Well, they married while I think they married while she was still in vet school. Ah. Okay. And you know, I want to say before we go on, I want to say the impression I get of Mac is that he worked as much as she did to build the practice. And he probably was managing the bars that they invested in and were, you know, literally working to do that. There are some allegations of him doing otherwise, but all the divorce records are sealed. And so I can't, you know, I don't have any testimony or briefs or anything that would give his side the only reason I have the petition is because a news agency managed to get a copy of it from the clerk in Houston, and they published it. Because none of the family law documents are available online. Yes, ma'am. So... Um, so yeah, so we'll go back to January 12th, 2017. Um, basically Leon is throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, Valerie is not shutting up. I mean, not Valerie. Megan is not shutting up. Megan is still continuing to say, look, I'm paying all the bills. You need to get a job. Um, another issue that they had was she was like, you need to get a job. And he's like, you don't understand. I'm a doctor. I can't just take anything. It's like, bitch, you ain't making no money. You take whatever you can get. 
Yeah. And he was getting money. Pardon? Yeah, you're not a work doctor. Yeah. And he's not even really a doctor because his medical license in Texas that he got Mm -hmm. for his residency there expired in 2011. He had no medical license anywhere. So he wasn't even a doctor. Not really. Not technically. Not legally. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So he's having a tantrum. And she decides this is it. I'm leaving. I'm done. I'm not dealing with this crap anymore. And when she attempts to leave, he grabs her and puts her his hand over her mouth. And she bites him, and she gets away. And she leaves, and she goes to his mother's. Then she goes to stay with his brother and sister-in-law. Leon then begins... No, his mom. And that tells you something, too. You know, his, his ex-girlfriend shows up at his mama's house, and his brother and sister-in-law take her in. So I think, I think Leon, Leon has been the problem child of this family for a long time. Oh, okay. Okay, and I, I think there was probably some sweeping things under the rug and pretending things weren't as bad as they were with him. But when it comes down to it, his ex-girlfriend shows up on Mama's doorstep, and Mama opens the door and lets her in. And her son happens to be there, her other son, who's normal, and he says, yeah, come stay with us. And this begins Leon's obsessive contact and stalking of Megan, wanting her back. Wanting her to talk to him. He's sorry. He leaves clothing and flowers on his brother's doorstep for her. And then the next night he shows up pissed off that she's there and yelling and screaming at his sister-in-law while her baby is asleep upstairs and causing a scene at the sister, the brother and sister-in-law. Right. Um, Leon has some anger management issues. And these are issues that have cost him residencies. (laughs) But, you know, he's still, he's one of those people that he doesn't think, he thinks everybody else is the problem. He doesn't realize when you have that many issues with that many different programs and that many different people, buddy, you're the issue. You're the one with the problem. (laughs) So, um, 
So eventually, Megan does go to police and uh, a misdemeanor family violence charge is lodged against Leon. Right. And she is able to get the court to sign a like an emergency protective order, which says he's to have no contact with her directly or indirectly. And indirectly, because Leon doesn't quite seem to understand, means you cannot contact somebody and have them talk to Megan for you. And also in his mind, his brother and sister-in-law were part of the problem because they were poisoning Megan against him. Yeah, not so much. You know, of course, you you know from all the things that I've said in the past, you know that you're lucky. He's lucky Megan wasn't more like me. I would I would have bit him, and then I would have beat the tar out of him. Right. Um, and uh. There would have been no ifs, answer, but I would have beat him so bad, he would never want to speak to me again. Yeah, I mean, this dude <laughs> is well deserving of an ass whooping, I can already tell you. <laughs> so, um, yes, so, uh, yeah, so he's he's got that no contact order, but of course he doesn't, you know, he that doesn't apply to him, he's He's special, um, and so he continues the emails and, of course, you know, the manipulation. Well, I guess if you don't want to talk to me, you don't really. You never really loved me, and I'm so hurt that you never really loved me and all the things I did for you and, you know, all these problems you're creating for yourself. And it's it's just like, oh, my God, <laughs> you are delusional because not only does this guy think He's some great surgeon when he's not, but, you know, he thinks that he's like the best thing to ever happen to this girl when obviously he's her worst nightmare. And she told him multiple times, I don't want to talk to you. We're done. It's over. Stop contacting me. And he refused to do so. Yeah, that's um, like it's a admin charge waiting to happen. Yeah. So he, uh, on February 7th, he was arrested on the, or taken into custody on the misdemeanor family violence. And at the same time, he was also in possession of amphetamines. Um, it was a small quantity. Like it was less than an ounce. But I think that that may also be, in addition to being a, monumental asshole he's got a substance abuse problem yeah he he's more than a little bit of an asshole <clears throat> yeah so <laughs> he's a great big one with neon letters um <laughs> over his head um life would be so much easier if people just had neon signs over their heads so, um, so you know, and he again, he still he doesn't see 
on the 14th of February, they were in court for the hearing to get a permanent protective order in place. Leon, initially, he and his attorney say he wants a hearing. And then shortly afterwards, they agree to a protective order. And I guess in Leon's mind, if he agreed to it, then it's not really a protective order, and it doesn't count. And at that same hearing, he was arrested for stalking for all of his behavior between uh, toward the end of January through the date of the hearing of continuing to contact Megan. He would go to her employment. He would stand in bushes. Like she couldn't see him in the bushes. That's another place the an ass whooping would have been administered had it been me. <laughs> I would have been across the street going, you better run. And then if he didn't run, I would have whooped his ass. Um he was bailed out or bonded out on the stalking, and guess what? Bond, when what? it involves family violence and stalking, you get another no-contact order. So that's like three no-contact orders that he's no, gotten. I mean, but honestly, these no-contact orders, they're just, they're, they're just stacking on top of each other. What the hell does it really mean, honestly? Like, it's not well, they are they are not stopping him, but that's because he doesn't have the good sense to modify his behavior because he thinks he's better than everyone else, okay. and he's exempt. I I firmly firmly believe poor Golda when her husband died, she did not spank that child enough. And I'll get into a little bit later, I'll get into that, (laughs) that what tells me she didn't, and I guess being Jewish mom, first baby boy, you know, they they aren't big on disciplining the first baby boy. Um, I don't know. But, you know, he's a kid that could have, he could have used some serious, serious corporal punishment. Yeah, he needs um, a little Well, yeah, because I, you know, I think he's he's gone through life and he's never really faced serious consequences for anything he's done, no matter how unacceptable it may be. He's a spoiled or may kid. have been. Exactly, spoiled, entitled, monumental asshole. Asima. <laughs> So, um, so Leon's, Leon has had, since January 12th, he's had this plan, especially after the family violence and stalking charges, because one of them is a misdemeanor, but it probably would not help him in the future if he tries to get a medical license. But I think the stalking is a felony. 
when it involves family when it involves a victim of family violence. So he's looking at a felony. So his plan, he tells people, he wants to get Megan to withdraw the charges or move back to Pittsburgh. But he also wants people to talk to Megan and get her to take him back because he's so sorry. He didn't mean it. It was horrible, he knows, but he'll never do it again. The first person he enlisted with that plan is a woman by the name of Laura Thurlow. And, of course, involved in that plan is an attempt to seduce Miss Thurlow. While he's trying to get Megan back, while he's probably become involved again with Valerie McDaniel and has moved in with her and is now sponging off of her, he wants to start an affair with Laura Thurlow, who's a paralegal for a family friend who has a successful criminal practice. After just a few days of Leon, Laura says, this dude is crazy. He's weird. He skeeves me out. So she doesn't want to have anything more to do with him. And of course, Leon, he doesn't get that. So when she says, Leon, stop contacting me. I'm not doing this. He's like, he doesn't hear that. He hears, well, I can't talk right now. Call me later. Um, And I was sexually harassed by a guy like that. Mm -hmm. And it took threatening to choke him on his own testicles for him to get the message. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. um, So she calls a friend of hers by the name of Kenny or Kenneth. And I believe, if I if I understood her testimony correctly, she was able to speak to Kenneth one day, and then the next time she called him, Kenneth was dead, but his friend, Moataz Aziz, who is called Zach, for simplicity, uh, he answers the phone, and he offers to help out, and, and Zach is, he was... I believe, born in Illinois, lived in Jordan for a while with his family, and then moved back to Houston. He was a U.S. Army vet. He is a U.S. Army veteran. He was actually wounded in Iraq um, and got an honorable discharge. Uh, He gets in touch with Leon, and he's got the James Bond spy craft uh, down because he tells Leon, okay, we're going to set up this email address and then what you're going to do when you want to communicate with me, you write an email, but you you do it in drafts and so you don't ever send it and then I can log into the email address and I'll read it and I'll know what you want to tell me. And then he proceeds to take anywhere from 9500 to $15,000 out of Leon's hands to help him with the Megan problem, either to get her to drop the charges or to help her move back to Pittsburgh. Uh-huh. 
And once he figures he's he's gotten all the money he's going to get, which he doesn't inform authorities, even though he got the impression that Megan's death would not be an unwelcome outcome for Leon, um, he did not feel uh, the urge to call the police, but he did pretty much take advantage of Leon about as far as he could, and then he went to the hills and went underground and stopped communicating with Leon altogether. Uh-huh. And, of course, as we know, you don't stop communicating with Leon. Leon is resourceful. If he put half as much effort into his residencies, into learning medicine, into learning about his patients, into learning how to be a good doctor, he'd be a freaking standout. Right. But that's not important enough to him. So uh, a gentleman by the name of Michael Felix Michael Kubosh, he is a city councilman in Houston as well as being a bail bondsman. He had bonded Leon out on the stalking charge, and he had also bonded Zach out on a minor theft charge. Zach was accused of stealing from a roommate. Um, Leon goes to Kubosh's office and tells him, you're going to get me in touch with Zach. Zach took a lot of money. Zach's got to handle this problem for me. And Michael Kubosh immediately thought, okay, this ain't right. And he decides, you know, he gets, gets the impression that Leon, while he's saying he just wants the charges to go away because it's an embarrassment to himself and his family, uh, which I frankly believe the family part, but not Leon, because Leon strikes me as one of those people that doesn't have the sense to be embarrassed about anything. Um, Kubosh says, okay, I'm going to call. Houston PD. So he calls the chief of police. And then he gets the wheels in motion for the investigation. Um, In speaking with the police, I think he advises them that a guy he has on bond, Zach, is the person that Leon's trying to contact. So police go out and talk to Zach. And Zach admits, yeah, I took his money. I wasn't going to do anything. Um, and so they get Zach to reach out to Leon. And then they set up an introduction with a, an undercover officer who is playing the part of a hitman. And because this officer works still in Houston and still undercover, I'm not going to use any names that I have heard or read that might identify this gentleman. I'm simply going to refer to him as the hitman. Mm -hmm. 
because I don't want to inadvertently give away anything that might jeopardize his safety in the long run. Because, you know, there's like a gazillion people listening to this podcast. And some of them may know criminal elements in Houston that might recognize a name here or there. So he introduces, he's going to introduce him to the hitman. In the first call that Zach makes with the hitman to Leon, they're talking and, and he, you know, Zach's like, we're getting too close. Um, so I'm going to, I've got a guy, he's really good. He's former special forces. You know, he knows what he's doing. He does this, you know, he does this all the time. He's good. I'm going to hand you off to him and he's going to, he's going to help you out. And Leon's okay. Is he going to take care of both problems? And um, if you watch uh, Oxygen's Murder for Hire episode about this case, they play the actual recording of this call. And you can hear the little wheels in Zach's head turning and Zach thinking, what the fuck? Because in his conversations, Leon never mentioned anybody but Megan. And all of a sudden, now he wants a twofer. Dang. And that, you know, after after a pause and a what the fuck moment, Zach is like, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. So... Um, the following day, a meeting was arranged at Olive Garden. And when Zach and the hitman arrive at the restaurant, Leon comes out to meet him, leads him back inside to a table, and sitting at that table is Valerie McDaniel in her scrubs from her vet practice with Dr. McDaniel written on it. Leon's wearing, like, dress pants and um, one of those colored shirts. It's like a a blue with the white collar and the white cuffs. Right. Uh, it says it looks like he just came. It looks like he just came from work, but we know Leon don't got a job, so he's just dressing like that to make it appear. He probably, Valerie probably thought he went to work that morning. Ah, okay. Okay. So they have a long conversation, and, you know, Leon, he thinks he's smarter than everybody else in the room. He is probably pretty smart on an IQ test kind of way, but he doesn't have any common sense. And he doesn't have the work ethic to really apply that intelligence to anything except scheming. And so he's very careful during all of the tape conversations. He's very careful. He's like, well, I don't want anybody hurt. I don't want anybody killed. I'd prefer that not happen. But then 
he's saying, I want you to grab Megan, put her in a car, put her in a room, and I'll come talk to her. Sweetie, that is the very definition of kidnapping if Megan doesn't want to go. So you're not saying the word kidnapping, but the actions you want taken are kidnapping. You ain't that bright, buddy. Right. Basically, <laughs> it's kind of like OJ. When, he got, yeah. when he got caught on, just because they didn't let the dude leave the room, it was kidnapping. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, you know, this was part of the plan with Laura Thurlow. He was going to give Laura Thurlow a, a syringe to inject Megan with something. And another conver- another part of the conversation in Olive Garden, he says something about injecting Megan with potassium chloride. Stop her heart. Untraceable. Those are Leon's words. So, again, you're not saying kill, but you're suggesting that the action's taken, and you know they'll, you're a doctor, right? You know they'll result in death, right? But right. just because you're not saying kill means you don't really want death. So, um, and then Zach and uh, Leon leave the table so that Valerie and the hitman can discuss the second problem privately. Because in Leon's little pea brain, he thinks if he's not at the table when all that's discussed, then nobody can pin it on him. Um, And he would be right if he wasn't such a dumbass. Um, So while there, while Valerie is talking to the hitman, at first... She seems like she's kind of wanting him to just talk to Mac and get Mac to be nicer to her. Because Mac's mm-hmm. not being very nice. You see, they have joint custody of their daughter, who I will not name. And um, Mac objects to Valerie shacking up with a guy who's facing criminal charges for family violence and stalking being around their eight-year-old daughter. Uh-huh. Perfectly reasonable. But Leon apparently thinks it's not. And so, unfortunately, Valerie, he's convinced her that it's not reasonable. Of uh, apparently, the day before the, the first phone call with Zach, Mac actually was refusing to return the daughter to Valerie because he knew that Leon was living with her. Because even though Valerie said, oh, yeah, I won't have him there, when she's there, he won't be there. He'll go stay at his mama's house. But then Mac finds out from his daughter that Leon is still living at the house full time when she's there. Of course he's going to be pissed. Perfectly reasonable. 
You know, but again, in Leon's mind, it's not reasonable because nobody can tell him what to do. And by extension, nobody can tell Valerie what to do. So, uh, so like I said, at first she wants him to be nicer. And, you know, when I'm listening to that part, I'm like, honey, that's really not what it men do. They don't talk to people. <laughs> They're not marriage counselors. They're not relationship counselors. They don't go and say, you be nice or else. You know, they go put two in their heads and they, they walk away and they get their money. Right. Um, and and eventually during the conversation, she came around to that. Um, she did have, she did express some trepidation. This is her daughter's father and she really feels bad, but she doesn't want to lose her daughter and she doesn't right. want to lose Leon because he hasn't started abusing her yet. He hasn't started throwing temper tantrums where she is caught in the crossfire yet. Okay. Um, so when Leon and Zach come back to the table, this is when the financial arrangements come in. And Valerie is footing the bill. But Leon's doing the negotiating, and Leon agrees $10,000 to kill Megan and Mac uh, because the plan is to carjack Mac Mm -hmm. and shoot him in the head and then dump his car in a bad part of town. Um, And Leon, you know, voices this plan, so he's involved in in the hit on Mac as well. And so they agreed to a payment plan, $10,000, $2,500 a month. Another public service, another public service announcement, people. (laughs) Probably not Experian. Um, uh, (laughs) Another public service announcement, if you meet with a hitman, and he's willing to drop his price. He's willing to do it on spec. Or he's willing to work out a payment plan with you. He's probably not a real hitman. He's probably an undercover officer. And yeah. everything you said can and will be used against you in court. Or he's just not a good hitman. I mean, dang. If you willing to well, if you willing to get a Black Friday sale on a hit, come on now. <laughs> so, um, so they they make these agreements. Leave Olive Garden. I think it's the next night. The hitman shows up at the condominium in River Oaks, which is a a, a very 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 affluent section of Houston. Um, he shows up at the condo, comes in, and shows Valerie and Leon a picture of Matt, of Mac, either behind the wheel of his car with blood on his temple, slumped over the steering wheel, or a picture of Mac on the ground 
outside his vehicle, or both. Valerie's reaction um, showing that she was not the cool, cold bitch. She actually, I think, was a little upset and, and left the room and went outside on the balcony. Leon was like, oh, cool, $1,800 is under that towel. What? Yeah. And then he and the hitman end up going out on the balcony and standing out there and talking for a while. And um, there was a tense moment because apparently when Leon, when they first went out on the balcony, Leon decided he wanted to search the hitman for a wire. And somehow or another, even though the wire was still transmitting and recording, it was not transmitting live to his backup. And when his backup tried to call him, he just he just had to ignore that call. After the deed is done is when he gets suspicious of dude. Okay, you know what? He thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, but he's really not. Like I said, he lacks he lacks common sense. Yeah. Okay. The time to look for a wire was in the olive garden. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I mean at least hit him with uh, Are you a cop? If you're a cop you gotta say you're well, no. a cop at He least actually he, he actually did that He did do that <laughs> He did ask him I don't know whether it was at the condo Or whether it was at Olive Garden He did ask him if he was a cop <laughs> so. And um, while while they're yeah, um, the one of the funniest things is that while they're out on the balcony, um, you know they're talking a little bit more about what to do with Megan. Um, and Leon, I'm sure inside is a little pissed that this hitman didn't take care of Megan first, but um. Because Leon should be the priority, not Valerie. Uh, but he, Leon says, "Oh, my mom could use you." You know, my mom's a my mom's a prominent divorce attorney in town. My mom could use you. What the fuck's your mom going right. to use a hitman for? I mean, <laughs> um, so, uh, so then the hitman finally, you know, they finish they finish transacting their business. He picks up the eighteen hundred dollars, which is what seven hundred dollars short of the twenty five for the first installment. Um, and he leaves the he leaves the condo and the money goes in evidence. And you know, at that point a lot of people don't understand. At that point, murder for hire, that's your case. You're done because you've got statements on the tape of what he wants done. You've got 
confirmation that what he wanted done was done. You've got payment for services rendered. Anything after that point is gravy in the prosecution. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of people don't understand with Dahlia DiPolito. Um, but uh, I don't I don't want to go off in that rabbit hole either. <laughs> so the next night, they hit me in calls and tells Leon that he grabbed Megan, sends Leon a picture of Megan with duct tape wrapped around her face and her hands and feet tied, um, sitting in on a bench in like a warehouse looking place. And bless her heart, poor Megan is so traumatized by all this. She's in the photograph, her face is red, and she is, you can see, she has been crying her eyes out over this. Right. Um, and then they he talks to the hitman for a little while, and because Leon had said something about going and bringing potassium chloride to kill her. So the hitman's seeing if he'll go for it, and he doesn't. You know, he's like, oh, you know, the vet, the vet's office is closed. I can't get it. So he's, you know, like, and this is another thing, what a shit he is. He's going to get potassium chloride from Valerie's veterinary clinic and use that to kill his ex-girlfriend. He's offering that to the hitman. I mean, okay, he he thought he was standing in line for a second help in a brain, but he was standing in line for a second helping of football. Because he's got that in spades. So um, then the course of the conversation continues, and the hitman's like, well, sorry, I had a killer. She was yelling, screaming, hollering. Because, you know, the hitman kidnapped her. Uh, <laughs> and um, Leon's like, okay, well, you had you did what you had to do. Oh, well, you know, okay, cool, thanks. I'll get your, you know, next $2,500 payment next month. I uh, don't know whether he actually said that, but, you know, that's the gist of it. It really, it it meant nothing to him. On March 10th, 2017, and this is a little bit like Dahlia DiPolito. I mean, this all started toward the end of February, and boom, boom, boom. You know, they got it wrapped up. On March 10th, Houston police police officers with lieutenant from the Houston Police Department, like their major case squad, went to Valerie's condominium at two or three o'clock in the morning um, and they knocked on the door and Valerie comes to the door oh we were asleep what what can I do for you and they asked to come in and then they tell her um, we're sorry to tell you that your husband was shot and he didn't make it or your ex-husband was shot and he didn't make it when was the last time you talked to him? Oh, 
a couple of days ago. Oh, my God. And then she sits down and she, you know, acts like, and maybe she really was crying. I don't know. Um, Because, again, she strikes me as a fragile person. So maybe she really did feel some remorse or shock about all of it. Um, And then the lieutenant asked, is there somebody we can call to come stay with you? And, oh, my boyfriend is here. He's asleep in the bedroom. I'm surprised Crackhead was asleep. Or Methhead was asleep. Because a lot of emails that he sent to Megan, he sent between the hours of 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. <clears throat> so, um, anyway. So, Leon comes out. And they, of course, have to repeat everything for Leon. And immediately, right off the bat, as soon as they say he'd been killed, Mac had been killed, Leon's like, oh, oh, my gosh. We were here all day. We never left. We were here with her daughter. Like, yeah, that's totally normal. You find out somebody's dead and you tell the police your alibi. (laughs) It's just like, okay. And um, you still there, Michael? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm listening. Okay. I thought you'd laugh at that. Okay. The the amount of stupidity, I feel like I'm losing brain cells right now at listening about this dude. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Our our IQs are going down (laughs) progressively as we speak. Um, so then that was like the, that, that was the PS de resistance. And so, uh, the lieutenant's like, okay, I've had enough with this bullshit. He's a little bit like Lieutenant Sheridan. He's like, okay, I'm done playing games with y'all. I got to read you your rights. You have the right to remain silent. And then they arrest them. And of course, you know, Leon's like, I don't understand. Why what did I why am I being arrested? I don't understand. <laughs> Fuck you, motherfucker. Oh, <laughs> oh my god. god. I, I would take my and, at that point. I wouldn't even be able to yeah. see nothing. And and so, you know, and and like, you know, the lieutenant's like, We'll explain everything. Somebody will explain to you. Just shut the fuck up, you know. And Valerie they initially were cuffing her, and then they found out her daughter was in the apartment. And Mac was out in the hallway waiting. Or they knew her daughter was in the apartment, and Mac was there waiting. So the lieutenant is like, look, hand your child to her father. I don't want you to say anything. I don't want you to do anything that's going to traumatize the child. I'll be watching. And so... Valerie went and got her daughter and brought her out to the hallway and handed her to Mac and, you know, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. I I think Valerie was legitimately in shock because this was not the outcome she expected. Although probably in the back of her mind, her two little brain cells with common sense we're saying this is a bad idea. 
so uh, they're arraigned, and Valerie is granted bail. Leon, not so much, because he's already violated all the no-contact orders, and now he's charged with trying to hire a hitman to not only kill Megan, but to kill somebody else. So his ass is going to stay in jail in Harris County, which I understand is not a real pleasant jurisdiction to be locked up in. Yeah, and I'm sure they were real fond of him there in Harris County. Well, you know what? I think I think really Leon is a little fish in a ocean with other fish that don't even know he exists. No, so you don't think he got some extra attention? No, I don't think he got extra attention. Um, I, I and I'm sure if you asked him, he would tell you all the prisoners love him. But mm. I think that probably nobody notices him now. Eventually, his mouth and his anger management issues are going to get him in a shit. But he may be able to hold it together, and at least he seemed to have been holding it together up to his trial. Um, which we'll get into later. Um, and so Valerie is released on bond. Her vet license has been suspended because felony charges of solic- two felony charges of solicitation to commit capital murder. Um, yeah, yeah, because she's the one paying for everything. You know, she's the one. She's the one funding this operation of idiots. So technically, um, even though she isn't like the brainchild of this, does she get in more trouble because because um, we're we're getting to that. To we're we're gonna get to that. Okay. We're we're gonna get to that. Okay? okay. So she goes back to her condo and holds up in her condo. And um, she did on the twenty sixth. She went to Austin and had a final dinner with some friends of hers. And during the time she's in her condo, because she can't go to work, because she can't practice veterinary medicine. People are still um, friends with her? She, I think she still has, I, I think everybody, all of her friends believe that Leon was the influence and, you know, if she had never gotten involved with Leon, none of this would have happened. And I agree. But she recorded, she made some recordings on her iPad. She contacted a news uh, outlet in Houston. She provided them with the recordings. She left letters for some neighbors. And then she walked out onto her balcony and she jumped from the seventh story and killed herself on March well, 27, 2017. Yeah. Um, like I agree, I agree with her friends. This was Leon meeting her, taking control. He wanted her money. He didn't want Mac having money. He didn't want Mac telling him that he couldn't be at Valerie's 
whenever he damn well wanted to be at Valerie's. And he convinced Valerie that this would take care of the problem. She would not have to worry about, because Mac was going to take the daughter from her if she continued in this relationship with Leon. And I think Valerie knew if Mac brought it to court when she agreed not to have Leon around and then had Leon around, that was going to be a problem. Yeah. And one of the one of the most idiotic parts of all of this is all of Leon's plans if he had gotten Megan to to withdraw the charges there's a chance that the prosecution would have gone through based on her statements to police because in Texas with family violence they can prosecute without the victim's cooperation because that's the nature of family violence. If he had gotten Megan to go back to Pittsburgh and refused to cooperate, they still might have been able to prosecute because that's part of family violence is intimidating the victim into withdrawing the charges. Mm-hmm. And Texas and the U.S. country got sick of that shit. You know, years ago, officers had to witness one party hitting the other one to even make an arrest. And now, right. you know, your husband can hit you and you can go to the police the next day and they're going to arrest his ass. Now, it may only be a misdemeanor the first time, but usually in most states, it's a misdemeanor. You get one. It's a misdemeanor. And after that, it becomes a felony. Now, to be fair, Lisa, I'm going to play devil's advocate on this. Yes, it's a good thing because of, you know, the whole witness intimidation. But you know as well as I do, or maybe you don't, but I've seen stories where some crazy-ass women punch themselves in the face and we're like, oh, my God, he hit me. So, I mean, no, I understand. I know that there is a tendency for women to abuse this. But the laws had to change to protect real victims. Like, um, I think her name was Tracy Thurlow. She was in Connecticut. Her husband used to beat the hell out of her. Police would never arrest him. And I don't know that Connecticut law would have permitted him to or whether they just didn't give a shit. And then one day he damn near killed her in front of police officers who stood by and did nothing because it was a family dispute. Wow. And so police attitudes had to change. The laws had to change. And they have changed. Yes, they can be abused. But generally, what happens is it comes down to trial and credibility of witnesses. And if Mm -hmm. he's got somebody that saw her hit herself and then say, he hit me, her ass is going to go down. And she can face false charges, perjury, and her own problems as well she should. 
any woman, I, you know, I, you heard me with Jody Arias, but you heard me. I mean, my, my attitude toward abuse is the same as my attitude toward sexual harassment. If you hit them hard enough, they're not going to fuck with you anymore. Very true. Very true. And that's how my mom raised me. She she didn't raise me to think, oh, you're a girl. Oh, you're too weak. Oh, you're too little. She was like, you and your sisters have knocked out drag out fights all the time. You hurt each other. Pretend he's one of your sisters. And you're really right. mad at her. And my one and only fight when I defended myself, I never had to fight anybody again because word got around that I was not one to be pushed around and bullied. Right. In great you ain't the lady to with. Yeah. So, um, Leon, after Valerie's suicide, um, Leon gave some interviews and pretended to be upset, but he didn't hesitate, nor did his attorneys hesitate, especially after his indictment on two charges of solicitation to commit capital murder. They didn't hesitate to throw Valerie under the bus. This was all Valerie's idea. Of course not. He's an asshole. And Valerie was paying for it. And poor Leon was just trying to help an emotionally vulnerable woman who was having problems with her ex-husband. And he never wanted Megan hurt or kidnapped or killed or anything. He was desperately in love with her, and he just wanted her back. So uh, after his indictment uh, around May of 2017, he filed a request to get out on bond. And it's kind of funny. It's like the state can't prove solicitation to commit capital murder. Well, he was mistaken about that. Um, and uh, the family violence charge was dropped, as was the stalking charge. But the reason those were dropped is was because he was facing solicitation to commit capital murder. Um, so, you know, prosecuting on them on prosecuting him on those two minor charges in comparison was not, you know, judicial economy would not be served by prosecuting him on those two charges. So, uh, his request for bond was denied, and during the hearing, apparently the judge made a comment when uh, Leon's attorney was up there talking about how much Leon loved Megan and how much he, how desperate he was to get her back and win her back. Um, the judge said something along the lines of, "Yeah, so you go out and hire a hitman." And, um, of course, that led to a motion requesting that the judge recuse himself, which he denied, and which the uh, district court in Houston, in Harris County, uh, felt that recusal was not warranted. So that was 
you know, that motion was denied, and Jacob never appealed the failure of the judge to recuse himself. So it's a dead issue. Um, so they go to trial, and the prosecution case, as you can imagine, was exceptionally strong. They had recordings. They had testimony from Michael Kubosh, Zach, Laura Thurlow, uh, several police officers, uh, the hitman, uh, a bunch of people, and all those recordings. They also had Megan and Max testimony, which each provided the why for the jury. The prosecution's case became even stronger when Leon Jacob took the stand. And one of the most brilliant things that the prosecutors did was when Leon was cross-examined, the woman attorney prosecuting the case cross-examined him. And his testimony is available on YouTube. Michael, you need to watch it. Just to get an idea of what a, I mean, what a total waste of space this guy is. He could not even answer a question, give a straight answer for his, during his direct examination being questioned by his own attorneys. If the question wasn't framed or or stated in just a certain way, he would say, oh, he would correct the attorneys. And it's like, dude, you know, and you're sitting up there doing this, and guess what? The jury is seeing every day of Megan Barricus's life with you. Right. And then another thing, um, Leon's attorney, who is uh, a man by the name of George Parnham, he has a reputation in Houston. He has been, for many years, a phenomenal defense attorney. He got T. Colin Davis off murder charges or murder-for-hire charges. Uh, He represented Clara Harris, who ran over her husband, who was having an affair, and got her like a manslaughter. Um, He, I think, represented Andrea Yates. Mm -hmm. So he's a good attorney, and people on YouTube criticized him. He is older, but he's still a good attorney. And the problem is he had a shit show for a client. Well, yeah. And he had mounds of evidence against that client. So he was trying to turn shit into filet mignon. And it wasn't working. But one of the people he got was an expert by the name of Al Yanovitz. And what Mr. Yanovitz did is he took the poor quality 
original recordings from Houston investigation because they were not recorded on the best equipment, I guess. Um, and he was able to enhance them, but then he went one step too far and he basically was going to try to tell the jury what Leon's intent was. Mixed in with his information to the jury was basically going to be kind of like off shave. It was a false confession testimony. And intent, when you're dealing with a criminal prosecution, intent is a matter to be decided by the jury. And if you get an expert that tries to go into intent, no matter how carefully he disguises that, you're not going to get that expert on the stand. And so the judge not allowing Yanovitz to testify resulted in a hilarious putting Leon Jacob back on the stand to explain (laughs) some of the things he said in the recordings and try and, quote, put them into context because they're being taken out of context. So, um, but that does not, when you don't have a credible client, you really don't want to do that. And Leon Jacob was not a credible client. Not surprisingly, even though it was like a four-day trial, the jury came back with their verdict in about an hour and a half. And it was guilty on both counts. And Leon looked pissed. One of the one of the reasons I chose to go ahead and do this now, even though his direct appeal is still pending, is that I was able to listen to and or watch all of the trial testimony on YouTube. And that's why I was like, oh, my God, I've got to do this. And I did some digging into Leon's background and, you know, found his history with his first wife and with other people and other women who he's, with whom he's worked and all those things. So um, then the really sad part started because the sentencing phase, of the trial, um, you get to see all of the people whose lives have been touched by Leon Jacob, not in a good way. And in addition to Megan Verikoff and Mac McDaniel, who were traumatized, because imagine getting a call from Houston police saying, there's a contract out on your life by your ex-wife and her new boyfriend. Uh, can you come talk to us? And when you go talk to them, they say, we want to stage and make it look like you got killed. Okay. That's some pig blood, and we're going to put that on you. So it's going to look real. And we're going to take some pictures, 
and then we're going to secrete you in a hotel until we right. get your ex-wife and her boyfriend in custody. Um, that's traumatic in and of itself. Um, and for Mac, additionally, he's now the only parent that his daughter has because her mother realized she'd gone too far, could not face everything, and ended her own life. And in an interview, Leon Jacob blames not getting bail. He blames Valerie's suicide on him not getting bail and not being there with her. And you're right. I mean, if I were Valerie, I would have thrown his ass off the balcony. (laughs) And then I would have pinned it all on him. (laughs) And with his history, everybody would have believed me. So we also had testimony from his first wife, Annie Morrison. And she talked about the years of abuse and um, running credit up and um, spending money and not working and um, those things. Leslie Jacob talked about the incident at her house with her child sleeping inside. Dale Johnston, who is Jacob's stepfather, uh, testified about an incident. And this this is the incident that led me to believe that Golda Jacob did not spank her son enough during his formative years. There was some kind of dispute between Golda and Leon. Leon got in his mother's face, screaming and yelling at her. Her husband stepped in because he didn't think that was right, and Leon hit him and knocked him down. Wow. Now, um, I was talking about this with my sister the other day, and I said, Lee, what would mom have done if you had gotten angry or I had gotten so angry at her and I got in her face screaming at her? What would mom have done? And Lee was like, laid your ass out on the floor. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you know? even been a question. And, and, you know, and I, I, I got to say, you know, my my nephew – my sister said a lot of things, but I don't think she ever followed through. But my nephew did not try her. Because the things that she said she would do, he did not want to face those consequences. Yeah. She never... She, I mean, I, you know, when he was little, she spanked him, I'm sure, but um, not often. And like I said, when he was a teenager and he wanted to go do something, and she was like, no, you're not leaving the state of Louisiana without me, and I can't go. And he thought, well, I'm 18. I can go if I want to. She's like, yeah, come back, and you're going to be buried in the backyard with the dogs. And guess what? He didn't go. Because he didn't want to try her. He probably threw a big issue And you know, and of course, it and and then Darren Gooden, who was Patricia's husband, and her daughter testified, and 
you know, he testified about the harassment and the stalking when Jacob started having an affair with his wife. I mean, that's that's the nerve <laughs> this MFR has. He's having an affair with the man's wife, and he starts stalking her husband. Creepy. So, um, and then, of course, I think his brother Adam testified and his mom testified. And his mom, bless her heart, she downplayed the incident where her husband got knocked down by Leon. Um, But like I said, I mean, you know, Mama, if you had knocked that boy on his ass one time in his life, he would not be an adult man up in your face screaming at you. Right. Okay. All it would have taken was laying his ass out one time when he crossed the line. And you'd have never had to do it again. Um, and the jury uh, came back. The The sentencing case, I think, went more quickly. It might have been a day, maybe two. But uh, the jury sentenced Leon to life in prison, which in Texas only means about 37 years. So he will be eligible for parole sometime in the 2040s, I believe. And he'll be in his 60s. So um, now his conviction and sentence are not final because he does have a direct appeal pen, a direct appeal pending. And it's at the 14th District Court of Appeal in Texas, which covers Harris County and several other counties. The issues that he's raised are the in, are insufficiency of evidence. So basically he's arguing that the state didn't prove that he committed solicitation to commit capital murder. The basis for that argument is a novel one. His argument basically is that because Megan and Mac were named by initials in the indictment and it was never submitted to the jury – to determine that the jury knew that Megan Veracos, MV stood for Megan Veracos, and MM stood for Mac McDaniel, the state did not prove its case. I think it's a novel approach, and they've got some interesting arguments to try to back that approach up. However, Identity of a victim is not an element of ca- of solicitation to commit capital murder. And so even if the jury didn't determine that MV was Megan Veracos and MM was Mac McDaniel, um, that's not material to the charge of solicitation to capital murder and therefore – it doesn't matter. It, it's not, you know, it's not the evidence was sufficient. They proved everything they had to prove. Right. Um, it'll be interesting because if the Court of Appeals does reverse on that issue, 
a lot of cases are going to go back before the various appellate courts in Texas on that same issue because initials are used in sexual assault cases. Mm-hmm. And initials the, – the reason to use initials in an indictment is to spare victims from identification in the media because all these things are public records. And then they're also uh, challenging the judge's uh, exclusion of Yanovitz. Uh, they, uh, they're alleging that he abused his discretion. And again, they got a novel argument that he was going to help the jury understand the portions of the recordings that were hard to understand and that it was vital to his defense. But, yeah, you know, yeah, it was vital to his defense to have somebody else saying he didn't mean it. He wasn't serious. Um, but um, I doubt that that's going to be uh, I doubt that's going to be successful because the judge t- questioned Yanovitz during the Daubert hearing mm-hmm. and like specifically asked him, you're trying to tell them what his intent was. Well, you know, the, you got to put it in context. And, you know, kind of, the way Yanovitz answered the question basically, you know, made <laughs> supports the judge's decision not to, uh, not to allow him to testify in front of the jury. Right. Uh, and they did, they proffered, they also were able to proffer Yanovitz's testimony. If I recall correctly, so um, even if the appellate court finds that Yanovich should be, have been able to testify, they can look at the uh, testimony and decide whether it was um, going to help or change things or not. And then also, the judge at some point during voir dire um, made a comment that any fine assessed against Leon Jacob would be meaningless. And they're arguing that that poisons the jury panel. Right. And they're entitled to a new trial. So um, we'll have to see, basically from what I read in the briefs, uh, taking that comment or statement within the context of the judge's entire statement to the jury voir dire panel, um, I don't think that the appellate court is going to find that either. Uh, but it's like I said, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting approach. He's not appealing the failure of the judge to recuse himself, so. That issue is final. He can't raise it anytime. If any of you tries mm-hmm. to raise it in post-conviction, he's going to get shut down because he should have raised it on direct appeal. Right. So, so that is um, Leon Jacob, the spoiled, entitled. Major asshole, what do we call him? I, I, I mean, good lord. Uh, I know. 
And there, there's, there's one incident that I, I didn't mention that happened um, shortly after Megan left him. He followed her, and then he drove his car in front of hers, got out of the car and got in front of her car and was yelling at her, you're making a huge mistake, I just want to talk to you, blah, 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 blah. And um, the girl did not run him over. I would have run him over. Right. The way he's been stalking me, I would have run him over, backed the car up, and run him over again. Ran over again. And then cried and called 911. And said I was terrified, and I hit the brake by mistake. I I hit the accelerator by mistake. I was trying to hit the gas. I was trying to turn right, but I accidentally turned the wheel left. My bad. It's so terrible. And then when I tried to put it in park, I backed up and drove over him. I accidentally. I know. I mean, I was so flustered, and I I thought it was in park. I thought that was P, but it was R. And the car went back. I mean, and then I didn't know what I didn't know what to do, and and so I thought, well, let me move. So I accidentally put it in drive. And I mean, it just went on for like five minutes. No, no, I, you know, I mean, I've never dated. A guy who was physically abusive. I have dated a couple whose friends said, warned me to kind of watch out. And I was like, bitch, please, let him hit me. It's going to be his last mistake. And you could tell him that. And the relationships usually didn't last that long because the first time they start the controlling behavior, like, I called, where were you? Uh-huh. Like, none of your fucking business, click. <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> no, I don't want to talk to you. So, um, and I had, my ex-husband once told me we were watching that Tracy Thurlow movie with uh, Nancy Joe, wait, Nancy McKeon. And Dale Midkiff, who was really handsome, and uh, my ex-husband, we are sitting there watching it, and one of the scenes is really intense, and he looks at me, uh-huh. and he's like, you know, I would never do that to you. And I'm like, oh, okay, geez, thanks. And he's like, no, because you would fucking kill me. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> we hadn't even... We hadn't even been dating that long, but he just, he's like, you're not a person to mess with. So I, I've gone through my life, you know, and and it's people don't try me because they get the impression that if they do, it's not going to end well for them. Right. And I, I really, I really, really think more little girls and women should take that attitude. Now, granted, I might end up, you know, somebody might try to rape me and they'll kill me. But I'm going to do my damnedest to take them with me. You know? Got you. 
because yeah. I am not going to go gently into that good night. And uh, I'm also well, going to be threatening them. If you live, I'm going to fucking haunt you. <laughs> so, but... Um, you going to get one of them uh, voodoo dolls? No, I'm not going to be a voodoo doll. I'm going to be an evil spirit. Oh, okay. Okay? And, you know, like, I'm going to I'm gonna possess them and take them to a bad part of town and have them stripped butt naked and yell racial epithets in oh, the wrong damn. part of town. <laughs> Lisa, that's just wrong. But, you know... It'll be effective. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, and it doesn't matter if if he's, you know, if the person is African-American, I'll go to a white part of town. If the person is Hispanic, I'll go to a black part of town. If the person is white, I'll go to a black part of town. <laughs> and I'll put on a show. And they probably won't leave alive. That's hilarious. So, but yeah, that's I know that's the kind of stuff I think about. But wow, yeah, I'm gonna be an evil spirit. <laughs> now, if I go peacefully in my sleep, I won't. But you know, there, there's, there's a. There was a belief that if you if you died being murdered or, or violent death, that you could be, become an evil spirit. So, all right, and that was that topic. And I'll probably go. I'll probably go to whatever prison Leon's in, and just mess with him a little bit too. <laughs> So I'll tell him I'm Valerie. Right. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's put a bow on this one for before Blog Talk cuts us off again. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us tomorrow, July 9th, 2019 at 8 o'clock p.m. for Episode 19, Part 2 of our Court of Public Opinion Chat with case watchers and researchers from Facebook. We'll be back live on Tuesday, July 16, 2019, at 8 o'clock p.m. with part one of our profile of State of Tennessee versus Sedley Alley. Alley's case made headlines in May 2019 when his daughter filed a request for post-execution DNA testing with the Tennessee courts and the governor of Tennessee. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.